everyone. Welcome to the Recovering Entrepreneur Show. Today we have with us Dr. Samantha Pillay, all the way from Australia, which is one of my favorite I want to go to places. Um, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bobby. Uh, it's fantastic to be here <laughs> all the way over the, over the internet. Over... <laughs> I'm going to be so excited about your accent all show. So um, that's a bonus. I am, I'm excited to have you here because you have a couple different missions, like you said, and you have a pretty interesting story. So do you want to kick it off and introduce yourself to my listeners? Where do I start? I am a surgeon in Adelaide, South Australia. I specialize in the field of urology or urinary tract surgery, and I subspecialize within that field on uh, focusing on incontinence surgery. So uh, urinary incontinence which is predominantly affecting, predominantly patients are female. I don't just treat female, but they're the majority of my patients. So that's what I do. Um, but it's only part of what I do. It's kind of evolved. I have been in uh, what we call private practice in Australia for 20 years, and I set up my own business. So I'm also a solopreneur, mumpreneur, founder, director of a surgical practice, which I started because I wanted to build a Centre of Excellence that focused on urinary incontinence that really show, showcased it as important. I felt it didn't get enough in t- attention. So um, I've ended up, like a lot of entrepreneurs, starting a business with absolutely no experience. And 20 years later, I can tell you I've learned a lot along the way. And then I have gone out and decided that, you know, I'm in my 50s. What else can I do to make an imprint on this planet before I leave it? And there were two big things that I suppose uh were important to me and that was women in leadership the barriers that I had to overcome um I was the first female in South Australia to train in the field of urology and by the time I finished my 14 years of training less than four percent of surgeons in Australia were female so I have embarked on a children's picture book series which I'm sure we'll talk about more and then I have also a passion about health. I realized that as a surgeon, what I can do to help people with their health is nothing compared to what they can do to help themselves. And so I'm keen to motivate people to help them make those changes they need to make because prevention is better than what I can offer. I love that. I love that. And, you know, it's an important, everything about you is impressive, but the incontinence problem I've heard of so many people struggling with it, women, but I even had an uncle recently that went through that struggle, you know, which I, I would have thought it was exclusive to women. So just learning that was kind of interesting. And now I'm getting old, you know, like die for a ball at volleyball or cough wrong, you know, it's just old age. But anyway, I didn't realize that only 4% of the country surgeons were females, that was when I finished. Fast track 20 years and now it's about 13%. If you include New Zealand, it's closer to 14%. So it's really low, but the figures in the US aren't any better. The I think the worst is orthopedic surgery. Um, 
of orthopaedic surgeons are female and they there was a paper last year that calculated at the current trajectory compounding with the current acquisition rates it was going to take 326 years for there to be gender equal gender in orthopaedic surgery in the US See, I think Grey's Anatomy has, has tainted us all. Do you watch Grey's Anatomy, that television show? I don't watch Grey's Anatomy. I'm not a big TV watcher, I must admit. Most of those things for doctors, it's like, oh, you know, roll your eyes. That's not what it's like. Obvious. And I think people obviously know things are going to be dramatized. That was my point exactly is, you know, it's probably a 50-50 split or maybe even more women on that show that are surgeons So that was my point exactly, is we're getting false information. If you watch a show like that, you think that in a hospital environment or even a private practice, that that's what it looks like. And it's just not. Yeah. And people are so overworked and stressed. You know, I, um, it's just so funny because I always make people look good, obviously, on those. It's like, you know, come to work. I'm not like, I haven't washed my hair for a week. I don't have any makeup on. Everyone's got bags under their eyes and stressed out. No one looks fantastic. So. Why, why did you pick that? Do you mind me asking? Can I go backwards a little? Like, why did you pick that? Was there entry? Yeah, at urology, there was a number of different reasons. I knew I wanted to do surgery and that was, that was a problem. There's a lot of gender issues. You know, in those days, it was like, you know, great for a woman to do medicine, but doing surgery, what, don't you want to have kids? And so it wasn't seen as a family-friendly career, but that wasn't my only barrier. I was born with congenital hip dysplasia and it wasn't picked up. I failed to walk. I started school in a wheelchair. I had multiple operations and learned to walk. I had limited mobility and a lot of uh, restriction and 24-hour pain, which I know that sounds awful, but I actually had had it from birth, so I didn't actually know any different. It was just something I had to manage. So everyone said, you know, not it wasn't, oh, you can't do surgery because you're a woman. It's like you can't do surgery because you can't stand and operate. That meant that one of the factors was I was looking for a specialty where I didn't have, like, I didn't want to do neurosurgery, you know, brain surgery, because often the operations are like, you know, 10 hours. So I had to choose a specialty where the operations were more likely to be short procedures. I also, and then urology is one where a lot of the surgery is done sitting down. And then within that, I subspecialized in an area where most of my surgery was short procedures sitting down. So that was a factor. Then obviously there were other factors. It was interesting. No female had ever done it. There was a a sort of niche area I felt I could really make a difference. There was no surgeons in South Australia, well, in South Australia who were specialising in incontinence surgery. And subspecialisation 20 years ago really hadn't taken off in Australia. It had in the US, but not in Australia. And so I was the first surgeon in Australia to exclusively subspecialise in what we'd call female or functional urology, meaning I didn't do the other stuff, the prostates, the stones, the cancers and stuff. So um, that was how I ended up in that area. There were lots of other factors, but that'd be the main one. Sounds like you've overcome a tremendous amount and that you're a brilliant woman. So it's very impressive. Thank you for sharing that with us. So 
tell me a little bit. I'm going to, I want to hit all three of your big topics. And I love how you rolled them all in together, you know, from, from doctor to health to the children's books, which I love the graphics on, by the way. So we're going to make sure we share those everywhere because it's quite lovely. So what kind of things are you doing to influence people on the health front? What, what do you want to encourage them to do? What does that look like for you? 60% of people in the US have a chronic disease. 40% have two chronic diseases. The World Health Organization has estimated that 80% of heart disease, uh, diabetes, stroke are preventable. 40% of cancers are preventable. And you think of how our healthcare system struggles and the cost to our healthcare system. And then look at most of that could actually be prevented. But the only person can do it something is the individual. Now, there is no shortage of information out there. So there's a lot of people who want to have a healthier life. People are living longer. And so, you know, if you're going to live to 100 and your life is crap from 50 to 100 because you've got struggling with disability from chronic disease that was preventable, what you do in the first 50 years really determines the quality of life in your second 50 years. The problem is all those little things you do every day might take decades to materialise. So my sort of message is invest now or pay later. It's not... It's about trying to help people find the motivation. If you actually suddenly prioritise your health, like it is the most important thing, it's more important than money, it's more important than career, there's nothing that's more important, you know, maybe your kids but or family, you know, then that gives people the power because people are capable of doing amazing things. But it's just helping it rise to the top of the list. There's plenty of information out there on that can help people once they want to lose weight or change their diet or quit smoking, that can help them do that. The difficulty is not those resources, but the difficulty is people prioritising, staying motivated, getting back on track when they lose their way and just continuing to keep on every day and never give up. And once they've got that self-belief that they can do it, and they're totally committed to the cause, then they'll find those resources. It's the first step that's missing. The resources are there, people just aren't going out there. And I think you've had a lot to do with addiction and recovery, and I am sure it's the same thing. The big thing is people going, "This, I have to do something about this, no matter what. And then the rest falls into place. So helping people get that aha moment. That's that's exactly right. And if it's the 12th, point of view, it's my life has become unmanageable, which I can definitely see the correlation between that and physical health. Because, you know, if you're taking pills for cholesterol, or you can't walk up a flight of stairs or whatever, all those things are that start happening. Um, So what do you do to get people? Well, I guess you can't get people to do anything. I should rephrase that, huh? Yes, I'm hoping that, so I'm just adding on that journey through public speaking to raise awareness. And I also sort of write articles on my website and and through social media to try and create that movement of uh, people that are motivated to do something about their health. Now, the things that you were talking about were really, it's too late moment with the doctor when they sort of say, you've got diabetes, you've got high blood pressure, you've got pre-diabetes. But it's even earlier than that, and it really needs to start in kids, definitely, because we want to prevent it, you know. So whether it's putting on sunscreen, you know, 50% of Americans are going to get skin cancer. More people are diagnosed in the US 
skin cancer from solarium than lung cancer from smoking. So there's a lot of information that people just don't get. And if they and so trying to get those statistics is one aspect of trying to resonate with people going, oh, hang on, I, you know, it's not just about waiting until I get puffed going up the stairs. There's, a, there's, there's 10 years potentially of what happens before you get to that point, maybe 20. And trying to reverse it when the damage is done is too late. Things like salt, you know, one in three Americans have high blood pressure. 75% of the salt comes from restaurant processed meals, takeout, and the average American eats out or takes out five times a week. You know, it's not that salt you add in your food. And the CDC estimates that there's more salt in a restaurant meal than fast food. So there's things that people just aren't aware of that they're wow. just doing to their bodies every day. That was that was startling. I would have never thought that. So there's myths that you're really trying to break through and get the right information. Yeah. Wow. You gave me so much to process there. So I was taking a second when you talked about, you referred to the first 50 years and the second 50 years. And I've recently had a mind shift change about this. You know how they say, um, I wish I knew then what I know now I'm going, so I'm, I'm going to be 48 next month. And I'm starting to look at my 50th birthday as my first birthday, like to take everything I've learned in this part of life. And now it's like my do over, like that I do have everything that I could learn. So that just really caught my attention because that's a recent shift for me. And you're also inspiring me to make some changes probably even sooner than 50. Um, but that's what it feels but, like. Good. I, it's working. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm here for. Well, I, I definitely still have my cigarettes and although I cut back, I have this whole, I call it my attitude. Well, I gave up gambling. I gave up drinking. I I should still be okay to have cigarettes and sugar. Like it's a mindset thing. Right. And they're two horrible things. It could be, it could be, it could be something else. Like maybe, you know, shift from to coffee or something, something that, that might not be perfect, but it's not quite so bad. So the other thing is, you know, this might like, so for every person that dies from smoking related disease, there's 30 people that don't die and are living with chronic severe uh, disease as a result of their smoking. Gotcha. Yeah. Does it, so the, the, the thing it, you know, people, it's not like, oh, well, if it's going to get me, it's going to get me kind of thing. No, that's not really how it works. It's, you know, it's, it's, do you want to have younger looking skin? Do you want to be able to travel? Do you want to be able to shower and feed yourself? Do you want to be able to live independently? Because you see, as a healthcare provider, I see all the people that can't do that. You know, I've retired, but you know, all they do is spend all a fortune going to doctors to look after all of their chronic preventable diseases because of their lifestyles that they have to their life and they can't actually live the life and they might spend 20, 30 years, their last 20 or 30 years like that. Uh, That sounds scarier than giving up cigarettes. And I probably shouldn't have admitted that to you. I'm sorry. (laughs) We will have you off. You've already had your last cigarette. Oh, I see what you're doing. There's potential for that. And it is about finding what res- different things resonate with different people. You know, like, you know, for some people, you're about to turn 50. You realize if you smoke, you're going to look like you're 60 when you're 50. 
Mm. <laughs> okay. All right. I got to switch gears. <laughs> um, so you keep saying, which I think is interesting, and I think you're doing it for my benefit, but you keep saying um, the states, you know, you're comparing the United States stats to Australia. Yeah. So what happens in Australia, maybe differently that here, is the health better there? Is the message still needed in all different places? I just asked like six questions at the same time, but yeah, I um, what I'm it's- saying. It depends. So yeah, the stats are different, but we don't. We, I won't go into them. But it might be, you know, we have same rates of salt in our diet. We're just as bad. We're not as bad on obesity and overweight, but we're not far behind. Um, we have worse for skin cancer. Seventy percent of Australians have skin cancer by the age of seventy because of our sun. So there's little differences. We do. We a lot of people think the states is really bad on health. Um, but it's surprising in Australia that, 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 that there's some areas that we are the same or worse. Okay. I was just trying to understand the landscape around that. So it sounds like some of your strategies is awareness, maybe making people feel a little guilty, like, or, you know, letting them, I feel guilty. You didn't make me feel guilty. I feel guilty telling you that even saying it to my doctor normal, um, so what are some of the other strategies to get people at least thinking about making the shift? Yes, I think thinking about how it, it can impact on uh, your everyday life. So it's really easy to make excuses, which is what you're talking about already. You know, oh, I gave up this, so surely I can have this up, um, my cigarettes. Uh, uh, one of the interesting things that I... And for me, education has been really important. And I think um, for a lot of people, you know, exactly. It's like, oh, I didn't realise that. It makes them think. And I, when I've been speaking, I've had people where, you know, all I need is one person who says, oh, my God, you changed my life. I mean, that is the best thing ever. Obviously, um, helping people is something that I'm passionate about, which led me to become a surgeon. And so through writing or speaking, if I'm doing that, it, it, it's very rewarding as well. I started to look at... Um, low-level alcohol consumption, you know, because I was, you know, in my late 40s, same sort of as, as you, and I was thinking, you know, so many people I know drink a lot, you know, you know, I might have two or three glasses of wine, but God, you know, someone else is just, you know, off the scale. And I, but I start, it's very easy to justify what I did when you see other people who are heavy drinkers. I was just a social drinker, you know, busy, stressed out surgeon, come home, have a glass of wine, we're cooked dinner, et cetera. What I would call low level, right? And then I looked at, you know, the, the, the sort of government websites, even in the US, and it's like moderate alcohol is one to two glasses a day. And I was like, mm, I thought that was light, not moderate. And then I started to look at all the risks of cancer, you know, with just three glasses of wine a week, increase your risk of breast cancer and the risks of cancer associated with alcohol, the stuff that high-level alcohol causes, like, you know, severe anxiety. And I thought to myself, you know, I'm so stressed out, you know, on a glass of wine. What happens if the low-level alcohol is causing anxiety? Because you actually just, when you escape a problem, the next morning the problem's still there. You don't actually use that time to solve the problem or gain the life skills you need to be able to deal with stress. And if you just spend your life having a drink when you're stressed, you know, fast-track 20 years, you have the same skills that dealing with problems in life as you did when you were 20, when you were 40. And, you know, that's not growing up. So 
<laughs> I thought it's not sort of affecting my sleep, etc. Anyway, I sort of looked at it like this is, I don't think this is good for me, you know. Why do we all think, I, like if I went out and had drink a drink, I thought I was going to have fun, right? Well, I didn't have more fun. Um, you know, I was, you know, you're just not on your best behaviour. You're not as interesting person. You don't have a great conversation. Um, your social skills aren't as good. Like everything was just not as good. And once I saw it for what it was, like it was like this stupid myth we'd been sold that it relaxed me and it didn't. It made me have fun, didn't. It made me look better, <laughs> didn't, you know, or whatever it was. I wrote this article that people can read on my website where I've written some articles um, about my journey with low level. Anyway, I stopped wanting it and I haven't had a drink for since before COVID. Um, but it's not, and it's not like I consciously said I'm giving up alcohol. It's not like I said I've got to stop drinking. And it's not like I'd be thinking, oh, I really would like a drink, but I'm not going to. It was none of that. It's like it's for non-smokers. If you offered a non-smoker a cigarette, they're like, no, I don't want it. They're not like thinking, oh, I'd really like to have that, but I won't. Right. Two different things. So by becoming more healthy, the same thing has happened, you know, whether it's processed meat or something high in salt. I'm thinking, but I really want to put that in my body. And so I think if we prioritise our health and prioritise our bodies and have that self-respect, that helps motivate us to take care of the, the greatest asset we have. I really appreciate you sharing that alcohol stuff. That was, that was quite interesting. My journey, and this is this is where my rationalization comes from was it wasn't hard for me to quit drinking. And, and quite honestly, when I went to rehab, people were asking me, are you going to rehab for gambling or drinking? Because both had ramped up so much and I don't really miss drinking. So in my head, I, I tie in this mental health component, like this, uh, almost like I'll be healed or have peace about whatever it is that was causing me to have the stress to drink. So whatever stressors are left are the ones that I might blame to smoke. Again, it's all just the, the self-talk and the, the way that I frame it to justify smoking, which I totally get. And it's kind of fun talking about this. What I haven't heard much, we talk a lot in the addiction world with alcohol, but a lot of it has to do, again, more with a mental health perspective. I've never had a guest on, on my shows, either of them, where we talked about it from the physical health perspective, quite how you just said it. Like, I didn't think about alcohol being connected to cancer. Right. Okay. It's huge. Yeah, it's absolutely huge. Um, so the, I, 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 I probably can't recall all of the stats, but as I say, I wrote this 3,000 word article on my website, so samanthapillay.com. And what I did was I actually looked at the parallels of the history of smoking uh, to alcohol. Things like smoking was so ingrained in society that even doctors promoted it, right? right. Uh, things like the biggest predictor was if parents smoked and the most likely way for people to get addicted is they started smoking young, like at the age of 18. Um, and that people really didn't appreciate the cancer-causing effects of smoking. And then if they had known what smoking would cause, they never would have allowed it to be released in the first place. The point of what I'm saying is everything that they say about that 
is true for alcohol. Oh, you 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 definitely should read my article. It's called "Will Drinking Ever Go Out of Fashion?" Okay, yeah. I mean, it's I when I think of physical illness with drinking, I think of cirrhosis or I think of seizures from withdrawal. Like I think of things that I've seen in my life with the people around me, you know, or accidents if they're drunk driving, you know, like I think of that. I've never drawn that correlation. So just that like is huge. And I can't, I think it's about eight cancers. Wow. Yeah. That's so disturbing. So okay. once I researched that, I'm like going, I look at every glass and go, oh my God, it's like, you know, what do I want to put that in my body for? And once you start to do think about that with food as well, yeah, then, you know, it, it, it helps. So the idea is it's a bit of a snowball. If you think about all the things that you can do, do to damage your health, it's all the little things you do every day that add up over the years. It's the same with health. Mm. Once you start thinking, oh, I'm going to put on sunscreen because, you know, I don't want wrinkles and skin cancer. I'm going to brush my teeth because, you know, I don't want to be spending a fortune in my latter years on dental treatment. Once you start having that mindset, every little thing you do that helps your health, it adds strength to the next thing. You know, you're more likely to make a healthy choice with food. You're more likely to not have those cancer-forming cigarettes or alcohol or whatever. Because once you start thinking health, you've got one body, one life, no second chance. You know, you... You can come up with all the excuses in the world. You can say, you know, my aunt smoked till she was 100 and whatever, 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 okay? And so when you come to see me and I go, you've got bladder cancer, you can list 100 excuses. I'm going to change your circumstances one bit. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. So I'm I'm going to use me as an example because I'm guessing there's probably a lot of me's out there, not necessarily with the smoking, but when looking at yourself holistically or trying to do the right thing, I've studied diet and vitamins and all those things, you know, did the vegetarian phase, did, did a lot of different exploration. And I'm still very unclear to your point. There's a lot of information out there almost to a fault. And I will be aware of my health. Like I'll make an effort to go on walks, to go to Zumba class, to only keep things in the house, I'm trying to do this three ingredients or less. So fresh fruit and, you know, that kind of stuff. And then of course there is like things like the cigarettes in the background, or if I, if I'm out dessert, dessert is like my kryptonite, for example. So do you see a lot of people that have some of the good and some of the bad? Is that more yeah. than the normal? That's right. It's the, that's, that's what I'm trying to help is the people that want to do the right thing, but they struggle and they have setbacks. And I think part of my motivation comes from the fact that I was born with a condition that I couldn't do anything about. And that was like, well, okay, why would I then do the wrong thing about something I could do something about? And that is the very similar to people who um, say have a really unhealthy lifestyle and then have a heart attack. And then they make the change. I was kind of born with that aha moment. So the trying to sort of connect with those people and give them some uses. So you might, I don't know if you know this, the first book I wrote was a cookbook, which everyone goes, you're a surgeon, you wrote a cookbook. Um, it's called the No Recipe Cookbook. It was a cookbook for people who don't cook. It was to get kitchen phobes into the kitchen and end the Uber Eats generation because of the health side of it. 
the so it's written in prose there's no recipes there's no pictures it's a simple repertoire of meals shopping once every two weeks because I was time poor that you can cook fast and quick depending on with on whatever ingredients you want and part of that comes from the processed food the packaged foods the eat out the takeaways etc so trying to get those skills there for people to make those changes because but as with all the things that you're struggling with the more you start thinking about your health from every aspect if you sort of do a health checklist and think of all the things that you're doing and then hopefully again some of the the facts about the the risks associated with whether it's processed meat or whatever that you know that you you, makes you become what I call self-care aware and so what I try and talk to people about is it's going to take time get to A for B but you're going to start building your health armor one piece at a time so but when you look at all the things you've got to do, you realise uh, two paths. You could be going down that path or this path. And that's one of the things that I had as a teenager with my, my hips. I kind of went, oh, okay, I've got chronic pain, limited mobility. Like if I just sort of wallow in self-pity and don't look after myself, I'm going to end up on disability income and I'm never going to be able to work. And so I attacked it like I attack everything else. I spent hours and hours and hours, you know, often one or two hours a day training. I spent an absolute fortune, but, you know, everyone else didn't have to spend all their money on Pilates and physio and all this sort of stuff. But, well, life's not fair. It's not going to make any difference. Either I have the life I want or I don't. And went out and did what I could. I There was like two paths I could go down in life as far as looking after my health or not looking after my health. That's um, the long story around the cookbook. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a great distinction. We take it for granted. That's basically what you just said is we take it for granted, those of us who aren't doing it. So it's kind of you and generous of you to make that point to us because I don't know, I don't know that I've ever thought of it as taking it for granted. It's I'm just going to do whatever I like to do. Um, I am curious Once about gone, you'll miss it. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. You're this is this is totally valuable on so many levels. And I appreciate you. This is why I don't like a scripted conversation because this is I think about so many people just in my life, never mind listeners, that to have this conversation and to hear things framed the way that you do, it doesn't even sound judgy. It just sounds like here's a matter of fact, like, you know, take care of yourself. So I, I really appreciate that. I'm curious about something, and this is way off topic, but do you have an opinion about marijuana? Like with this whole medical marijuana thing is, do you guys have it in Australia? Does your studies cross over with that, with the cancer? Am I allowed to ask? Yeah, I must admit, I'm not an authority on that. Um, And it's an evolving space as far as legislation here. So I'm even not up to date with where it's at, at this point in time, because it's not quite my area. So I'm not sure that I can really comment on that. I don't know enough about it. I haven't been involved in any of of that from from in 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 any areas. So I don't know. I can't fill you in. No, and that's okay. I just didn't know if it came up because if with you doing all this research, to me, like alcohol, cigarettes, and weed kind of all could land in the same bucket depending on what you're looking at. So that was where that came from. Um, wow. So do you wanna it's so impressive to me. I gotta tell you, I'm in awe and I'm so glad that you came on. Oh. When I think about all that you accomplished and 
you don't have to be doing any of this. You're a surgeon. You don't, you don't have to be spending your time talking to people and educating and, and helping on this level, right? Like you've already worked really hard and have this, you've, you've done a lot of work to get to everywhere that you got. So I'm just, I'm wildly impressed. And I just have to say that to you. So totally Thank you. Yeah, so much respect and so much that I'm learning. So the last piece of the Dr. Samantha play, it's so pretty. I don't want to mess it up. Play puzzle is another part that you want to help the children with, which insert your books now. Right. And can you tell us where that idea came from, what you're trying to accomplish with the children and that aspect of your service to the world? Yeah, I actually had to give a talk to high school students yesterday. So I think when I was growing up, I really didn't have any strong female role models. You know, it was like I started doing medicine. I wanted to do surgery and guys would be, if a guy said they wanted to do surgery, oh, my God, can you imagine? People were just like in awe. As a girl, if I said I want to do surgery, they'd be like, oh, really? Why? Don't you want to have kids? You know, when I was in my 20s dating, you know, uh, the guys would say, oh, they wouldn't say I'm a training to be a surgeon. They'd say to girls at the bar, I'm a surgeon. <laughs> and I'd be like, oh, my God. And I'd say if I said to a guy, you know, when I was dating in the 1990s, um, oh, you know, I'm training to be a surgeon, that was like a conversation killer. The sort of guy I was interested in was not interested in a woman who was training to be a surgeon in the 1990s. So there's a whole lot of issues relating to gender biases that, and it relates to society, um, the glass ceiling, all of that issue. It's about self-respect. It's about how women see women, how men see women. It's behind the gender pay gap. It contributes to domestic violence. It's a massive issue in our society still. I mean, obviously, there's even uh, other aspects in the States at the moment that create um, discussion about gender equality. So I felt... That Career gender stereotypes and self-belief, which is the other big thing. You see, it's about women believing in themselves that, to overcome that and change. Start to form age three. So when I looked at the problem, I thought, where's the biggest bang for my buck as far as my time and energy? Because I'm a reasonably busy person. So I thought, if, because if you go out there and start preaching about gender issues, you know, everyone's just going to stop listening. Whereas you have a beautiful, colourful picture book that everyone has delightful and then has a sort of subtle message, um, then maybe I can resonate not just with the next generation to change their way of self-belief and their dreams, but also the parents or the adults buying the books. And, you know, it's much easier to promote a message when you've got delightful children's picture book images. So I consciously thought about how I could best have an impact in this space. And I started off with when I'm a surgeon. So, you know, obviously the main character is a girl. And I wanted to explain to people that surgery wasn't just about seeing patients and operating on patients, which is a lot of people, that's all they think about a surgeon. That's, you know, it could be medical research. You could, you know, um, it might involve travel, it, public speaking, running a business, you know, writing children's books. You know, there's a whole lot of stuff you could do that, that leadership and that surgical career creates to allow a child to think about it. And that was my second book after the cookbook. And with it was a colouring activity book. So, yes, if anyone is feeling like some adult fun, they can go to my website and download the free colouring pages for the activity book and colouring um, might be different to the usual sort. 
or they might have some young people in their lives that they could pretend they were downloading it for. And I <laughs> then, <laughs> I have loved business. So I've ended up being an entrepreneur. I have a very entrepreneurial spirit um, and love the idea of entrepreneurship. So I decided to do another book, again, The Young Girl, um, when I'm an entrepreneur. And the books, the, the series has grown in its depth. So the activity book has, you know, globalisation, acquisition, mergers, like so in word searches, not the usual thing you'd have in children's books. And the pictures have hidden messages in the sense that, uh, and then I write backstory on my website that you can delve into deeper meaning on the images. So, for example, in When I'm an Entrepreneur, one of the images she's reading the newspaper, we can actually go to my website and read the actual articles on the newspaper in the image that I've written. Obviously, in the picture book, you can just see it's a newspaper, it's too small to read. Or there's things like When I'm an Entrepreneur, there's a picture where there's a young girl riding a unicorn. So it highlights the key qualities of an entrepreneur. So one of them is I'll do things differently. So that thinking out the square is very important with entrepreneurship. And she's riding a unicorn, which is often associated with doing things differently. But a unicorn company is also a billion-dollar you know, startup that's still owned by its founders. So she's wearing a striped T-shirt in the colour of the logo of Stripe, the pay platform, which is one of the biggest unicorn companies. So if you know your business, you'll know when you look at the image of a young girl on a unicorn that there's a deeper meaning. And just little things like that. One, she's got a picture of a dishwasher and Josephine Cochran is an uh, entrepreneur that really hasn't got the recognition she deserves because she, in the 1800s, invented the dishwasher. Now, there's not that many inventions, the same year as the car, that have been around that long that everybody has, and yet she's not known. So there's these hidden meanings that people can go and read through the, through the website to sort of allow my message to spread not just about changing young girls' self-belief, but extend it to as many ages as I possibly can from a children's picture book. That is brilliant. How creative. I understood as soon as you said she was riding a unicorn. I, I don't know that I would have made the connection with Stripe, the company, but wow, that is, that is brilliant. It is a problem. I it's such a problem still, not for necessarily frontline jobs, but it seems like I have a friend that worked for a company for over 30 years. When she replaced the VP that retired, they never made her a VP. They kept her as a director. But then other people, men coming around, get the VP titles. It was like they, sh like that's the stuff that doesn't even even in that environment, the women don't feel comfortable going in to ask or to confront that. Well, why, why do they get that? Because then it's like, oh, I don't need the title. I'll just do a good job. Like there's a lot of um, chatter, I think, in, in our heads. So I think that's part of the problem. And then there's the society part where it's creating this culture. Am I on the right track with my perspective? Yeah, it is that glass ceiling. You know, it's like it's like what I was saying, the low level of surgeons. You know, we've had equal numbers, and I think the state's the same, of women, of, you know, females and males getting into medical school, equal numbers for 30 years. And yet it's, the, it's that top that you're talking about, that VP, you know, that doesn't get through. And that's why the children's picture books are related to um, male-dominated, high-end 
careers. So the next book, it's just gone on pre-order on Amazon and it will be available for delivery from August the 9th is When I'm an Astronaut, which has been so much fun because obviously I had no personal space experience to bring to the book and I had was able to spend six months researching astronaut training, meet a whole lot of people in the space industry. Um, Andy Thomas, who's a NASA astronaut, retired. He did three space shuttle missions, has written a testimonial for the book. I've been able to be lost in space, which obviously in my 50s as a surgeon, I never thought that I would be um, creatively and virtually entering the space field. Um, and so it's been, it's a great way to sort of bring attention to women at those very high level positions, which is exactly what you were talking about. Yeah, that's fabulous. I was a truck driver in my early 20s. So that was 20 something years ago. I was definitely in the minority. It's grown since. And I was by myself for most of it. Eventually, I, I ended up teaming. But people didn't even that's not even like VP level or doctor or any of that. So many women would say to me, I always wanted to do that, but, you know, and it could be truck driver, it could be anything. Um, it, standing out, trying something different, breaking the norm. So from you trying to reach it from youth to get them thinking about it different and, and standing up for themselves early, I think that that's going to just have such a extensive ripple. And it's such a unique strategy that it just... The impact is going to be pretty impressive. That's that's my perspective. I hope so. I mean, I think, you know, I'm lucky I've had 20 years as a surgeon and obviously the incredible um, privilege to have such an impact on people's lives. Um, you know, I don't know. I think I've treated over 10,000 people in my state or something like that. But now writing the books, you know, I'm talking to people all around the world. And, you know, obviously, you know, it's 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 not... I'm not getting paid like I got for surgery, but I, it's great as far as leaving a legacy and thinking, gosh, you know, I can really feel like I've made a difference on, you know, on this planet. I, I, when you were talking about young girls, it's that self-belief and the, the dedication of the book is dream big, aim high, all of the books. And that is really the thing. So like I didn't even want to dream about getting into medicine. I thought I'd never get in. I didn't want to tell people I was going to be a surgeon. I didn't even tell my parents I'd applied to get in medicine. My dad was a doctor because it was like, you know, well, you know, I probably won't get in, in, you know, more people think of that career choice and is it feminine enough and always holding myself back. And that's so true for so many women. It's like, oh, maybe I shouldn't do that. Or, you know, a career was something you did until you had kids and then you either stopped work or went part-time. And if you, worked full-time when you had kids, it meant you didn't care about your kids, you know, or you had a full-time career if you didn't want to have kids. Just all these, this, this self-talk that we, we give ourselves. So one of the things I say to the young girls when I'm talking to them is, you know, have that dream, have the passion of what you want to do and then have a dream. And then I say, take your dream, double it, double it again. That's what I think we don't do. You know, it's like, think that. And I go, no, no, no. Now, double your dream. Double your dream again. Now you're talking. You know, it's interesting that you bring up the dreaming part. I 
I'm not a parent, so but I have my 18-year-old niece who is probably the closest thing I'll ever have to a daughter. And I had the honor of spending a couple of days with her. And we were talking and I was like, I said something about her having to take care of me in my old age because she's the one. And she's like, well, you said you're going to be a billionaire. And I said, well, yeah, but it's still going to be your job. I said, but when I'm a billionaire, what do you want? Like, where do you want to go? Where would you like, you know, your dream house and all of that? And do you know, she couldn't think outside of survival needs. She didn't even have the possibility to dream in her mind. She's never thought outside of that box. And that was like the most heartbreaking part of the visit for me. I'm like, how do I get her? You're talking about doubling it right now. And there's a baseline depending on who influenced their lives or things that have happened. There's a horrible baseline that we have to overcome to teach these, these girls that anything is possible. I, yeah. I guess I'm validating your point that I've seen it firsthand um, and it it's heartbreaking. Yeah, someone was actually, it's really interesting. Um, you know, I had this sort of idea that maybe through a children's picture book, I wouldn't just connect with kids. And um, it's funny when you have these sorts of things because you sort of think that's, you know, that's a, that's a stupid dream, Sam. You know, it's a picture book for like, you know, five-year-olds. I've, and then what, what you're talking about uh, you know people have sort of um um got it for graduation presents you know you know how they give off sometimes the children's books for graduation presents and then there was a young another person um whose daughter was wanted to be the next like elon musk or something and was 11 so much older than you'd have for a picture book with a few you know with pictures and not you know just a sentence on each page with the when I'm an entrepreneur, but because it sort of describes the key qualities of an entrepreneur, like, you know, um, like one of the other pictures, she's standing on the sh- on the, the shoulders of a giant, you know, and, and, and stuff. So she has actually memorised it as a mantra and recites it every day. She's got this vision of being a billionaire. And right. I'm just like, so it's just so much fun. Um, I, I, I mean, obviously being a surgeon, I didn't have any creative outlet. Um, and so I don't know if it's a maybe, you know, you, you're obviously in a creative space already, but, you know, maybe it's a midlife crisis for me, sort of suddenly going, well, I've been very science orientated, obviously, all my life. And as a surgeon, there's no creativity in the operating room um, uh, to actually be able to do something creative and then see it have its own wings and where it's going. You know, I'm having a lot of fun. Yeah, it is interesting that you have both sides of the brain going. Uh, another part of my career was always floral, but I always gravitated towards the business side versus making arrangements. Um, and you, most people made arrangements and they didn't grasp the business side. So it is a very unique talent to be able to understand both sides. Like you said, the science and the creative, that's, that's special. Yeah, so it's really funny that you say that because I've always had a bit of a joke because obviously surgery and owning a surgical center practice is quite stressful um and at times I used to sort of joke I've got I'm a single mum I've got a teenager my son's 14 I've joked a long time but you know I should have been a florist I could just sit there and just create and make beautiful flowers so it's always been this bit of a joke and then obviously with COVID you know there's one of the things that last holidays I did was this masterclass on flower arrangements by 
at Maurice, famous Californian, I think, hmm. uh, per- person. Anyway, um, it's really bad of me not to remember the name. And did this masterclass on flower arrangement and was going and making flowers because it is nice to be in that creative space. But then I can't help, I've got this entrepreneurship brain. It's like, maybe I should buy a, buy a floral business. You can't help myself. I've got to apply it. Um, and I think as an author, that's what's sort of slightly unique in the sense that I've had 20 years in business. So, you know, profit and loss is not a, a something that, that scares me or a contract or signing on full-time employees or whatever. So then coming in as an author, as a self-published author, a lot of authors, you know, really struggle with the business side or the marketing side or whatever, whereas I'm like, yeah, another software program, sure. Yes, yes. It's funny because I never wanted to be an entrepreneur. Never. I would, Growing up in flowers, everybody would say, why don't you buy your own shop? And I would say, well, why would I leave my safe company with, um, you know, medical insurance and access to all this inventory that doesn't have to come out of my pocket? And I didn't want that responsibility. So never got in that mindset until I figured out my purpose. And it's, it's such a big shift. And now I almost feel like entrepreneurs are in this secret community where we know more things than corporate America, because we have to be that nimble and cutting edge and stuff. And that there's probably going to be less and less big companies. Like we've learned the last couple of years, we don't need property to house cubicles full of people. We don't need to pay people $20 an hour to answer the phone, like between technology and evolution, just so much has changed. Like, I'm grateful that I discovered this side of it. It's, it's not as scary. And I don't have those people to your point about the glass ceilings and stuff wondering, am I not getting promoted or am I not getting that next thing because I'm a woman, because I'm an open-minded out loud woman. Like I don't want to have a filter. I want to be able to share ideas. Entrepreneurs talk a different language. We can say, um, you know, if I saw it, if let's say I go to your website to find one of these articles and I find a mistake of a, a grammar error or something, if I reached out to you, you would be grateful that I pointed it out to you versus Absolutely. the office environment where it's like, Oh, she said, you know, like, I'm not good enough, like friction. It's a different culture. And I don't, I don't like corporate culture anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I think, I mean, I love entrepreneurship because I love inventing and creating things. And I probably do, part of me likes risk. Um, you know, if you do medicine and you choose surgery, you've got to be someone that's prepared to uh, like the adrenaline, like the risk. You're constantly you know, when you're talking about promotion, as an entrepreneur, you're constantly getting a promotion. Every time you invest in yourself and get a new skill, you're upgrading yourself. I love being able to learn. I'm a, just a workaholic, but it's not just a workaholic. I'm a studyaholic. You know, I'll get up at four o'clock in the morning and, you know, when I'm on holidays and you know, work for 12 hours on a computer, whether I'm doing anything, you know, something to do with publishing a new book or watching a you know, class on flower arranging or, you know, doing spreadsheets and staff pays. It, I'm constantly uh, doing things across diverse areas. And one of the other things I've written about is, you know, when I started writing, it was just I kind of justified it to the people I knew as a sort of silly little hobby because, you know, how ridiculous. 
obviously I enjoyed it, so I put more and more time and energy into it. What I the unexpected thing was, you know, I, I wasn't surprised by the fact that there were things that I had learned over the years as a surgeon and having a business for 20 years that were useful as an author. But what I never expected were there were things that I would learn from writing that helped me as a surgeon. And that's one of the articles that I've written, you know, just from mental acuity or whether my, you know, PowerPoint presentations and use of Canva is better, the, but strategic thinking, thinking outside the square, putting yourself in a new industry. I mean, surgery might sound like it's stressful and it is, but, you know, like just like flying a plane, once you've been doing it for 20 years, you're not putting yourself on the line like you are when you first train mm. and keeping yourself mentally agile and on the cliff edge allows you to perform at your peak. Whether you are, you know, an Olympic athlete or no matter what you do, you know, people, you have to kind of keep yourself on that edge to be at your best. So when you're doing something you've been doing for 20 years, it's hard to do that. But when you, you know, I can learn other stuff about surgery, but learning going on a podcast when you haven't been on a podcast or putting yourself out there and doing something scary is a really good skill to keep yourself at the top of your game as a, a surgeon. I think that's the definition of living. If we're not experiencing those things and learning and growing, then we're dying. That's kind of my take on it. It, it baffles me why more people don't. It's the difference between sitting in the bar or something else to do. If that something else is personal development, I just, I just think it enhances quality of life. At least that's been, been my experience. It does impact the different facets of our life. Like you just said, but I still would be scared to death of surgery. Even 20 years later, I don't know how you do blood. I don't know how you do responsibility. So that's another like, wow, mind blowing. So I've taken so much of your time, but is there anything that we haven't covered that you want to share with the audience? No, I would say the, the next exciting thing for me is having the launch uh, on the 9th of August of when I'm an astronaut. Um, if people want to pre-order the book through Amazon, they can with when I'm an astronaut with my name. The They sign up to my mailing list. I'll be promoting a launch team for people who'll be able to, I'll let them know when they there'll be an opportunity to download the ebook for free because every author tr tries to get as many reviews as possible when they get a new book out there. So that's the next exciting part of my journey. So anyone who wants to come along for the ride, uh, it's a free ticket to space to join me and doesn't cost you 52 million or whatever it is that they're charging <laughs> for the tickets. I love it. Join me going to space. That's wonderful. Okay, so August 9th. So that's coming up. That's pretty exciting. Yes, that, that's, that's what I'm going to be working on the next few weeks is like, oh, my God, I've got a book, another book coming out, book six, and the activity book, book six and seven, I think, um, uh, coming out. So kind of exciting. Again, you know, I hope that I can inspire as many people. I hope uh, that next time I speak to you, Bobby, you'll be even healthier. And I haven't had a cigarette since that podcast, Sam. You really have given me a lot to think about personally. You, you definitely have. Um, this has been an impactful conversation. And I realized, so last year I went through a bunch of just family stuff and I had gotten away from podcasting. And when I was podcasting every day, 
during COVID and, and multiple times. I didn't know it at the time, but on the other side of it, it's so, even when it was just me, I was developing my skills, but now since the summit and the last few months, as I was trying to make up for lost ground, it's like, this is what lights me up. I learned something from all the different guests. It's not even about my skill set anymore or my reflection. It's about being connected all over the world, learning from experts on things that I would have never even thought I wanted to go deep on. And the conversations, like I'm talking to a surgeon right now, like that is amazing. A surgeon, author, person who very possibly could get me to put my last cigarette in my mouth or, or have had my last cigarette, you know, like you are Don't tease me. You'd make my day. Yeah. Like this is just such, it's just good stuff. And I'm just very grateful that I've had this opportunity to talk to you. Oh, I've had so much fun. It's been great to chat, chat to you too. I've loved it. Hopefully we'll do it again sometime. I'm sure. Yeah. I need the update, but you know you, what it you're, you're describing having found your passion. And your purpose, um, you know, you with what you've just said, Bobby, you are a born podcaster. You know, you are a born interviewer um, because of what you've just described. It gives you that opportunity. So, you know, keep doing it because you're doing the you've found, you've found the right thing to do. Thank you so much. I appreciate you saying that. But yeah, we'll definitely have to get together again, maybe on your 10th or 20th or 50th book. I mean, there's a lot of things that girls need to grow up to be. Yeah, there is. There is. Or, or dive in on, on one, of the, one of the many health topics and well, uh, I can too. get an update on how you're going. Yeah, I think you're onto something. Maybe we'll have you on 321 to talk about that health piece because um, just those connecting those dots on alcohol was so significant tonight. That would be a great topic for over there. So thank you so much for that. You're welcome. I will see you next time, Samantha. Thanks again.